This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Oh, Lordy, do I love your books. And I want to start actually with love because Black Friday, everyone knows New York Times bestseller. You were a five under 35 named by Colson Whitehead in the National Book Foundation. He has such good taste. <laughs> but also Chain Gang All-Stars is your first novel. And there's a lot of stuff here that's going to remind folks of Black Friday. I mean, obviously, you've been working on this book for a while. But I want to start with the love in this book. There is so much love radiating through this book. I felt so good and sad. I felt all of the things. But really, yeah. by the end of this book, you had me completely wrapped around the story and the characters and everything else. And can we just talk about how you found the love for the characters and the story behind Chain Gang All-Stars? Um, first off, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you allowing me in the space today. The love in the book is uh, its really important because I, in some ways, so the book is about imagined future in which convicted wards of state opt out of a sentence of at least 25 years to participate in these death matches if they choose to. And it largely thinks about the carceral system, which to me is a largely loveless system, as are many of our institutions. And so for me, the idea of love and compassion, and if that could be sort of a guiding principle for people as opposed to sort of force and power, which I think is kind of, I think force, power, and death is sort of the American sort of the rule right now. And if compassion, love, and connection could be the sort of rule, what would that look like? And so it made sense for there to be a lot of love in this book. It took a lot of different forms, but maybe um, particularly uh, the love between um, Third War, Stacks, and then them and the rest of their sort of team or chain is really sort of one of the fundamental energies in the book, I think. There's so much fantastic world building in Chain Gang All-Stars. It's a combination of language and character and action. I mean, certainly anyone who's watched professional sports or even reality TV, I mean, there are elements that sort of ground you in the here and now. And then there are things that happen and you're like, well, that's not actually possible and yet it is all so plausible right and there's a lot of violence and there's a purpose to the violence and we will come back to that but i want to talk about world building for a second because i mean this is anyone who's read your short stories knows you are very good at building worlds very very quickly and Thank i was you. invested from the opening pages of chain gang because of the way you set up the story but you as the creator of this world how did it start so i always had the idea or the image of like a woman in the eye of the coliseum i had like sort of this person who was speaking to like an announcer in a really strange context this i thought this was going to be a short story at first for friday black for my first book okay it kind of obviously grew into something else and what happened was i started doing research i started thinking okay you know what i'm interested in prison and I'm interested in the idea of abolition. And in many ways, I think I wrote this book hoping I was an abolitionist. By the time I was done, I realized I actually definitely was. And that came through like, okay, thinking about the history of, of prison, I was like, okay, I learned about the Auburn system, which is, you know, 19th century in New York and prisoners are forced to be in silence all the time. And I was like, wow, that's horrific. And then you learn about the nature of the death penalty in America right now and how we're more of a, mostly an outlier concerning quote unquote advanced democracies in terms of still having a death penalty. And you start thinking about all these just facts uh, that are like blatant, but also sort of hidden because we often don't think about prisoners or we also don't think about those who are incarcerated. And also the fact that I think uh, has been made famous by the, the documentary, the 13th um, slavery is explicitly protected by our constitution in the case of the so-called criminals. All these like real life facts has created so much material for me. And so I'm really, I think what I often do is look at what's in front of us and extrapolate against what feels like the trend. And so once you have the idea that, okay, people are allowed to make profit off of prisoners, once we know for sure that prisoners are legally and explicitly slaves, corporations right now are literally actively uh, benefiting from that slave labor. Once you have those things together, 
really anything's on the table. And so I kind of could have those sort of fundamental truths be like the guideposts and then build up from there. And what I ended up with was this sort of deathmatch space uh, where uh, humans are fighting for each other for their lives. And even just very recently, I saw that they were like, I can't remember where this was. They were floating the idea of prisoners being able to sell off um, organs to lessen their sentences. So, and that's real. So it's always right there. You're writing fiction in a really strange moment in our society, in our world. Yeah. And you do satire very well and always have. And you just have been able to pull these details that, like I mentioned earlier, you ground us enough. And then you kind of poke us a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And you realize how you're being poked and where you're being poked. And it's very sort of Kurt Vonnegut. It's very George Saunders, who you've studied with. I mean, I think yep. folks know that about you. How do you keep from going to extremes when you're right. creating these worlds? Because it would be really easy because we live sort of on 11 now, right? Yeah. So even to turn up the volume a tiny bit, suddenly like we're in the stratosphere and that takes the power away yep. from the work. It's really interesting. Like the sort of like delicate dance between like hyperbole and understatement or like slapstick or mm -hmm. like a more subtle satire. It's really a feeling process. For me though, in Tangang, if a character dies, they're dead, you know, and they're gone. And the response to that death is not, haha. It's serious. There's a real loss. The book kind of takes it seriously, even in the footnotes. So that's a sort of grounding element that pushes us more towards a, I don't want to say serious, but like away from what decided, but a more like jokey satire. Other aspects of like, in my mind, like keep it from going like too far is just by taking the moments that where anything happens and having the characters respond to them more or less how I think we would if we were in that situation. And again, trying to have a analog that is conceivable to the reader that is that exists right now for most right. things it's not like anything is like so 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 out of that field that we can't even have imagined it right. a lot of the things the technology at least theoretically will probably exist at some time at some point in the future some of those things are kind of like how i i try to keep it reined in but it's really more of a kind of un it's not unknowable i think if i if we went like line by line on like any particular page i could talk about how to keep it from going a little bit too far but it's really like that keeping that tone all the way through is it's really about understanding how this chapter is going to sound next to this chapter, knowing that some people are going to be more inflected than others, knowing that Third War is kind of my tuning fork. She's sort of like my middle, my middle C. And the book, if more of the chapters took place from the perspective of Simon Craft or Hendrick Singer Young, it would feel very different. It would feel more surreal, a little bit less grounded because of the just the nature of their uh, psyche. And so uh, having third words as sort of anchor load-bearing beam also helps make it feel a little bit more uh, altogether and grounded. I love her voice. I love her perspective. I love what she knows about herself and the world. I just, I think she's wonderful in the way she brings the entire, all of the links together. You call them links on the chain. All of the people on her team, how she brings yeah. them together and says, this is how we're going to do it because yeah. we are not just cogs in a machine. Yep. And it's such a powerful statement. Hurricane Stacks and Loretta Thurwer are really the big beating heart of this book. There are some, I mean, certainly, I don't, no disrespect to the men, but it really is about these two women. For sure. Which I found really interesting after reading, going back and rereading Friday Black, because so many of the stories are told from a male perspective, which was also incredibly refreshing and, you know, fun to read, even when it was really tough stuff. Yeah. What was that shift like for you? Because, I mean, you do have to sort of step outside part of what you'd been thinking. Yep. Well, you know, in, in some ways, it was like a continuation. So the very last book story in my first book was also the last story I wrote for that book. Okay. Um, it was called Through the Flash, and it had another very strong, physically kind of murderous woman as a star. I think in terms of thinking about Third War and Stacks, for some reason, I just always kind of had Third War as a woman in this very particular situation. But I, I think as I continued thinking about what prison is and also thinking about how sports and entertainment works, I felt like only a woman could be at the, could be both 
like hated, loved, sexualized, degraded in that exact type of way. Only a woman of color, particularly. It felt like it had to be third war. And then I needed her to have a partner that could kind of completely understand. And I just don't think a man would fully understand that that perspective. No offense. No. <laughs> <laughs> like the analog I would say is LeBron James understands like Serena more than most people, but there's something, there's a different thing that she has to deal with. So I wanted Stacks to like have a really complete understanding of their words, like perspective and vice versa. And that felt like just really important to their relationship being what it is. And so but in terms of actually rendering them, Third War, I appreciate that you like her. She's pretty reasonable. You know, she's sort of closest to like a normal person, even though she obviously has can tap into like a great rage. And I think we're, we're kind of meeting her a little bit calmer than she probably maybe has been in the past. She's seen a lot, but in a, a lot of her decision-making and her, her approach to life, she's not normal because she has a, a spectacular situation, but she's maybe the normalist. Yeah. <laughs> out of anyone else in the book yeah. and and by that i mean like see i i feel connected to her as like who's the one if i if i did a personality test mine would be closest to i think third war once i had that i just kind of i know that she's a woman i know that there's i i try to imagine some of the, the things that she would have to deal with that a man wouldn't have to deal with but then mostly i just i know that she's kind of a smart capable person of conviction and i just kind of think about how a smart capable person of conviction would respond in several situations I mean, part of it for me too is her voice, and I'm her voice separate from the narrative voice because I want to come back to the overall narrative voice of Chain Gang. Her voice is just so clear and so real, and she's a great substitute for me as the reader walking me through because I'm like, what? Yeah. Is I mean, granted, it's you, so of course I'm going to give myself over as the reader and just be like, well, it's Nana. Of course I trust him. It's fine. I'm going to follow him wherever it goes. <laughs> well, you're a generous reader because everyone doesn't do that. That's nice. I like to be surprised. I like to be challenged. I like to be knocked off my socks a little, like have my socks knocked off a little bit yeah. when I'm reading because there's so much out there where it's like, well, we only have so many stories, right? Yeah. Guy walks into a bar, woman loses her family, someone dies, someone's born, someone, you know. I, not to dismiss, obviously, the written word. I'm very fond of books in the written word. But <laughs> you do have to find a new way to tell a story and to engage readers. And I think if a reader isn't walking into something with an open mind, then kind of what's the point? Yeah. I like, agree. I absolutely agree. Like, why? <laughs> and I just, I think it's so important, especially when you're talking about you know, justice and punishment and certainly the carceral system and whatnot. We have to find new ways of having these conversations because the old ways are not working. Yeah. Like we can't hear each other. Like we just can't hear each other. So why not humanize? Like dehumanization is a huge piece of a lot of the problems we're seeing right now around the world and certainly in America, but around Absolutely. the world. So to humanize these sort of big ideas and give them over to Loretta Thurwer and Hurricane Staggs, I. I needed that. I needed that. Me too. Me too. I appreciate it because it. I feel like that same thing you're just you're talking about. I, I think I was looking for the same thing in writing the book. It's theoretical. It feels theoretical until you are right in the middle of dealing with someone's actual life and remembering it's a person, and then it gets it gets really really egregious as you start moving down the line of what we've allowed, and also its insidiousness is like sort of not only twofold, but like multiple, because it also tailors the way we think about the world. Even totally. if we're not involved in prison in any way, or we think we're not involved, we are, we are all involved. We're all trained to think that sometimes you just kill them. Sometimes someone does something, it's okay for the government to get a cocktail of poisons that cost thousands and thousands of dollars and inject them into their blood and kill them before an audience. It's archaic, but... It's crazy, and it's just sort of, but it's also normal. There's sort of this timeless feeling to the way you write in this book. And, you know, it could be 20 years in the future. It could be next Tuesday. It could be, but there's there's a sense, when I was reading it for the first time, there was a sense for me that this book is going to age incredibly well, which part of me is thrilled by that, and part of me is really upset by that, because I would like us to be able to evolve as a society. but. 
I know. I hope that they, I hope in the future, they're like, what was he even talking about? Yeah, right? Like, I, I would very much no. like that too. But can we talk about how you got to sort of the overall narrative? Because you're juggling a lot of characters. You're juggling a lot of set pieces. Yep. You're moving your characters physically, not just on sort of the game. Do I call it a game field? I mean, that feels a little yeah. weird, but I guess it's a field, right? The map, like the game map. The world, America, but the map, yeah. Yeah, right? But they're also like physically going from point to point, and yet there are always cameras, and yet there's always things in their wrists. Because it's not handcuffs, but they are... The, the links are handcuffed. They're magnetic like implants okay. called mag cuffs. Okay. But it also sort of determines how they can move and how they can interact with each other. And, you know, the guy who's driving them around, he has a self-driving van, which tiny things, those little details. When did you figure out what the narrative voice needed to be? Because I will say, having read the stories, I feel like you're really comfortable in this particular territory where it's like, I need sort of an arch voice with a bit of humor, I need to be able to take a step back yeah. in the story at any point. But like, how did you know when you had the voice of the novel? I'm a pretty like voicey writer, I guess. <laughs> Meaning like some of the voices are pretty inflected compared to what we are might expect from like normal language. And they sound like strange or otherworldly sometimes. I mean, I could get pretty like in, like in depth about it, I guess. There's many different voices, but Durwar and Starx are told from a, uh, the two main Protagonists, if you want to call them that, are told from like a close third. Yep. So it's not it's not a I, it's a she, but it's it's a very close, meaning it's mm -hmm. super inflected with their own thoughts and yep. their uh desires and their perspective. So it's like you kind of get your cake and eat it too. Again, I think if you want to think about the the close third, like George Sonner is really, really good at it because it, it's like his thirds are so close, it seems like a it seems like an I, but it's yep. not often. So that's a cool device because you get to have your cake and eat it too. Again, without giving any, anything away, I needed to be very close to both Thurwar and Stax, but also have the reader not know exactly what's in their head, you know? And if I had the eye perspective for them, it would be hard for me to, like, to me, like, meaningfully withhold what I want to withhold. I mean, I went back and forth about this many times, but I almost moved it to the eye for them. And I almost tried to have one chapter with Thurwar's eye, and I did not. Meaning first person is, when I, is what I mean by that. So, yeah, you have these two, like, totem poles in this very close third. That Thor Wars is a little bit more, I, I say standard, but it's very still precise. It's very matter of fact. It's very direct. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas Stax is, is, is a little bit more, Stax is, is, is a little bit more uh, whimsical or like floaty or uh, her mind drifts differently. She'll get the things indirectly rather than like right straight to them. Even though sometimes the indirect way is the way to get right to the hearted stuff. I think she's a little looser. She's much her, looser. Her her thinking is looser than Thur Thurwer is sort of much more, uh, for want of a better word, she's kind of more of the grown-up. And it's not yeah. just because she's the Colossus. Like, it's not just because of her role on the chain. It's like she would have been... It's a personality. Yeah, she would have been a grown-up when she was six. Yeah. Stax is, like, playful, even as she's, like, contemplating, like, really intense harshness. She has like a playfulness about her person and, and leaks into her point of view, her perspective in this close third I'm talking about. Those are like the the two like main voices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I imagine like if they're like the these two like main beams, then branching off of them, these two like main trunks of a tree are like these like other voices that are often, if not always, told from an eye. So there's less of them, but they are told from a first person point of view. And so now with those voices, because it's the full I, meaning not that they speak from the first person, the I, they, I can infect them pretty intensely, not only because it's the I, but because like they're pretty intense people, specifically Simon Kraft and Hendrick Singer Young. There's more characters than just that. But just yeah. thinking about those four, I have these two close third person perspectives with these two first person perspectives that are like secondary, but explosive, if you want to yeah. call it that, or yeah. very inflected. Like, and I... I kind of had a chance to like almost like flex a little bit because sometimes when you write in anything with any types of conceit, people kind of forget the line level stuff that you're doing. And that's not why I did it, but I had opportunity to do it that I sort of like did not back down from at all. One of the things I really appreciate about the close third, and you sort of hinted this without saying it, is the intimacy that comes with the close, the intimacy between the reader and the story, yeah. whether it's a character moment or like an action moment or whatever. It's 
the intimacy that comes from the close third that you can't actually do with the first person. Yep. And the first person is so much more aggressive. And for those characters, it really works. So that that shift in point of view, and I think too, it keeps the ground shifting because none of us should be particularly comfortable. <laughs> there was more than one moment where, you know, you zigged and I thought you were gonna zag and I would just scream with glee, yeah. even though I wasn't necessarily reading something. If it was something that I was seeing in real life, it would be incredibly disturbing. But because it serves a purpose as art on the page, yeah. I can relate to it differently. So yep. it's not like we're reading The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander or like Solitary by Alfred Woodfox, you know, or even How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. It's because you have a freedom on the page yep. and your characters have a freedom. We get in there and we're with them at any given moment. And there are yes. a couple of characters that I would really like to punch in the face, but that's a whole different <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Since we're spoiler-free, I am not going to tell people who I'd like to punch in the face. Yeah, we will leave that. We'll leave that out because there's a couple who are not the best. But absolutely, a lot of those books you just mentioned, I've read as well and read them while I was doing mm-hmm. the, um, this book in particular, mm-hmm. Solitary by Albert Woodfox. And, yeah, right. Um, Solitary by Alfred Woodfox. And I think about like LSP, Louisiana State Prison, Angola. Like that's still a prison. They, Angola has a rodeo in which prisoners compete and they have a gift shop. Like, what you really want a coffee mug from Angola? That's what I'm trying to say. Like, sometimes what? I'm like, I'm, I'm not, it's not, it's not crazy, but if you, if, if people want to read a book that will tell you about this prison system, mm-hmm. they should, I really recommend that book. And yeah. Albert Woodfox, like, I hope that people remember his name as a national hero. Solitary confinement is a form of torture. And you use a lot of footnotes in this book. And I wasn't expecting that. And I thought, oh, are we doing this thing? Are we, we are going to do this thing with the footnotes. I will follow you anywhere, but I had a moment with the footnotes, except the footnotes are great. Yeah. They never took me out of the story. And I really sort of, they felt a little snide and a little... And by snide in a good way, like, can you believe this? Can you believe this actual piece of fact that's supporting this wild thing that you just read? And they were just, they were really good. And they never took me out of the story. Because sometimes, no offense, sometimes footnotes will pull you out of the story. And these did not. These did not. No, I was very, very wary about using footnotes in this Mm -hmm. book. I'm one of the people who do not like footnotes in my fiction. Yep. But that said, I did like, there are examples I have in mind where I did like them. But I, I think what I liked least about footnotes is that they were not dynamic in how they arrived in most other things. So my footnotes are work a little bit differently. And I maybe I just want to say that, but they're not always the same type of thing. I guess standardly, footnotes will be like more information about something that might be slightly expository or something. There's more, more information about a subject. This sometimes does that, but sometimes it comes out of the world of the story sometimes it comes from our world sometimes it's it, they work a lot they work they work dynamically which i was interested in but yeah for me along a, a super important tenant of mine was from the i remember being the john uh gardener and being like never break the fictive dream and i view footnotes as inherently breaking that dream and so i was very scared but i also knew that this book was going to be like entertaining in quotes and I didn't want to ever have like the subject be lost. And there was just a lot of facts. Just like we like just now we were talking about Angola and you telling me there was a rodeo about it there. Like that matters to me because that's significant to the world, I think. And so footnotes gave me a chance to really sew in some real life application of like why this matters to why this or should matter to us in our real lives, as well as the characters in the book, why this thing might be significant for them as well. You know, part of what you had me thinking about as I was reading Chain Gang All-Stars, too, is whether or not we need to redefine what freedom means, right? And this is an idea that you play with, too, in Black Friday and the stories in Black Friday. It's like, what does freedom actually mean? Like, we have this sort of definition, right? And everyone seems to have varying ideas of what freedom means. And yet we have characters here who can find freedom in some ways when they are stuck in this impossible situation because they're like, well, actually, you can't have all of me. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have all of me. Or you can't have this piece of my relationship with another person. It's kind of exhilarating to see people hold on to themselves. And a couple of them, you know, maybe not the nicest people in the world, but they still get to hold on to themselves. Like, you're not not human if you are in this wild city. Like, people make bad decisions all the time. And people it's, make 
a matter of what the consequences are, you know, but like people make horrible decisions, split second decisions, like circumstances can be wild or people can just, you know, make bad decisions. And it's so easy to lose sight of that when you think you're not talking about people. Exactly. For me, like a big part of uh, the journey with this book is like realizing that people's humanity shouldn't be like negotiable. And so that idea of freedom is a hugely important one for the book. It's a goal. It's a state of being. It's a status, high freed, low freed. It's kind of everything. But also in our culture, we use it as as this carrot on a stick. And also as like a, if not the whipping post, because we we understand very clearly that if we do not follow the rules of our sometimes oppressors, our freedom could be stripped from us. And that is like really important to the people who have the power because we know that's what we value most. And so in their modes of existence in which they sort of withhold some parts of themselves or find joy or find freedom, I think the links are really doing this radical work. And I think they're even aware of that. Uh, they do this radical work of, of saying kind of like a F you to the viewers of this program because there's this back and forth relationship they have, obviously, but yeah, the, the question of what it means to be free and how how elusive it is, because in in a in a in a consumer capitalist world that has this the military and carceral systems that we do, is it even possible to be free? I think the book is really interested in that question. I think too, it's easy to forget that you know code switching can roll up into freedom, and sure. you know, respectability politics can roll up into freedom as well. And it's like, well, what do you choose? And are you actually in a position to choose? Like there's so many questions that we don't always ask because they're uncomfortable or we think we already know the answer. And that's the piece where I'm like, we think we already know the answer. And I'm like, that's why I would really like as many people as possible to come Mm -hmm. to Chain Gang All-Stars because I think their heads are going to explode in the best possible way because of the setup that you use and the fact that you never lose empathy, that you never lose compassion. And those are not synonyms. <laughs> not empathy and compassion are not synonyms. And love can actually be a really radical idea. And not in like the squishy teddy bear hearts kind of way, but like actually loving someone that you look at and say, I have nothing in common with you. That's a radical act. And you've harmed someone before. Yeah. And I still love you. But for me, it gets easier when you start realizing that, like, wait, we have a larger system that harms everyone. And many of us have the privilege of being protected from some of that harm, and many of us don't. And so that that system perpetuates its harm. It perpetuates its harm. It perpetuates it over and over again. And so when we make the radical choice to love despite or in spite or because, we kind of push back against this sort of mechanical, loveless, auto, automatic way of thinking. And that is really radical. And so that, that's why I bring it back to love. To me, love is, it is radical. It's the most radical. And it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Because <laughs> it's not the rule. It's not the standard. It's something you have to choose. And it's diff- and sometimes it's a difficult choice because we're taught not to. But we could teach ourselves something different. People constantly ask you why you write political fiction. And I always counter that with, you know, Jane Smiley has said more than once, like, writing a novel is a political act. Yeah. Right? Like, just writing a novel, writing fiction and explaining the world is a political act. And, you know, we have that response as a culture of late where everyone's like, well, I just don't want to be political. It's messy. Or, you know, your politics don't match mine and everyone can just go away. And yet, you have to ground your point of view in something, right? Like, even if it's a close third person, even if it's a novel that, you know, is a classic three-act structure, and every chapter has a title, which I'm curious how that happened too. But can we just talk about that piece of it for a second? For me, it just it just gets hard to imagine what people mean when they, like, a, a, an apolitical novel. But, you know, to be generous to them... Mm-hmm. Now that I've written this book, <laughs> okay. Okay. you know, uh, there's a such, I guess maybe there is like a, if they want to make a distinction, I don't know, of a, of a novel that is aware of its, of the particular and specific cultural conversation it is a part of, 
and by will or not will of the author does arrive at sort of push towards something. And I do think that just writing fiction is political. I think that we all arrive at a particular space and time and and putting your name on a book is political and understanding like what type of characters you write in the time frame and blah, blah, blah. I, I, I don't like to claim some of these terms because I feel like it's for other people to say, but I know this book is interested in abolition, you know, like in a, in a, in a way that is not like hidden or that is actually like, it's right there. And I mean, mm-hmm. like it'd be very hard for you to read this book and not think about that. There's so much to think about in Chain Gang in all the best possible ways. I mean, there were moments where I got really mad at you because stuff happened and it had to happen. I'm just saying inevitable <laughs> things had to happen. But, you know, I had become so attached yeah. to what was happening on the page in front of me that, you know, I got a little mad at you. But, I mean, not personally. But I've, been getting that, <laughs> I've, I've been getting that a lot from people who have read it. So, And I totally understand. And, you know, intellectually, I absolutely understand why the story does some of what it does, right? Without a doubt. I just, I was so attached. Yeah. I was even attached to the people I didn't like, because obviously you need the people you don't like to sort of push things forward. And I keep coming back to the, and you said it at the top of the show, but this started as a short story. And I'm just, I'm so glad you let it go. I mean, I love your stories because you get all of the emotions, really big emotions in this tiny, tight, compressed space. But I'm really glad you gave yourself room to roam with this one. Yeah, there's just so many points of view. Like, right? would have in in the short story, we would have had like 16 pages of third war reflecting on what she'd done. And I mean, I won't say what what happened in it, but maybe I'll tell you after. But like, it yeah. it, it contained. It actually, I went back and saw it contained a lot of what what happened in the book. Here, I got to have a not comprehensive, but a much because there's just too much insidiousness, but a right. much more thorough interrogation of what Mm -hmm. it means to be in a society where sometimes human beings are put in cages and murdered by the government. Also, I I got to like write about, I got to really meet, really know characters like Third War and Stax. They became like my favorite characters I've I've ever written. I can see that. It feels like you're, I mean, I know I just described Stax as being looser than Third War, but I feel like you gave yourself space to roam in this novel, in a way that you can't with short stories. I mean, short, it's a different art form. It's a, it's just a much more compressed, tighter, yeah, slicker art form in some ways. It's wild to me that more people don't love short stories the way I do, because I'm like, you can get so much in a very short amount of time. Like, you know, not every story has to be a thousand pages. Sometimes really, you can do a lot in 15. A lot of these people need to, well, people need to embrace <laughs> short stories more. And I, I totally had, like, in my heart of hearts, I do think I'm a short story writer. Mm-hmm. And I think that impulse impacted how this book came to be. And so the chapters individually have mm-hmm. their own little arc. And they yeah. individually have their own little satisfaction. They have their yep. own titles, as you said. So every chapter feels like a little almost episodic tidbit. Yeah, and exactly. you continue along that way. And so to me, my short story uh, background, but even... Thinking about poetry, like there's there's energy on a micro, micro, micro scale. There's the big mm-hmm. macro threads too. Right. And I really like to think of myself as a writer who is thinking about to the syllable level the energy and even to like the chapter to chapter level energy too. So short story stuff was huge. And think because I want that same immediacy, that same feeling of compression, that same feeling of nothing is extra that yeah, I yeah. hope is there in my short stories to exist in this novel as well. Yeah, you pulled it off. I mean, it, without a doubt, it's it's absolutely there. This book flies. Thank you. And I wasn't necessarily expecting that. I mean, I was very pleasantly surprised. But I, sometimes when someone's shifting or, you know, a novelist goes to stories and you're like, okay, I mean, I trust you. I'll follow <laughs> you. And then, you know, you get a thing. And sometimes it's really fantastic. And sometimes you're like, oh, I totally get what you're doing. And I love you. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't always. It doesn't always yeah. land. I mean, I took a long time for it. Like, yeah. there's a there's a much version, worse version of this book, and so I'm grateful to my editor Naomi Gibbs, yeah, yeah, she's my great. agent Meredith uh, Kafel Simonoff, yeah. some of my other readers, because there's a much worse version. But uh, we worked on it for a very long time. It, t- it took me about seven years to get this done. Yeah, and so uh, we got it to a place where I felt like, you know what, I think this is. It's just doing what it's supposed to do. What's that collaboration like? Because I mean, that's the same team that helped bring. 
yeah. Friday Black into the world too. So they're working with you on two separate levels, but also seven, you were very young when Friday Black came out. I mean, you were in your late twenties, right? Which, yeah. you know, not like you were Doogie Howser of short stories, but I mean, you were young. I was 27. You yeah. Now I'm 32. Okay. Uh, you're still young, but you're still older than you were. Like, I'm older now. Like I was, I'm going to, I was definitely going to, I've been thinking about how, like, when I my first book came out, the fact that I was 27 was, like, a part of the story. Yeah. And I used to be like, everyone's always saying I'm young. Like, I don't know how much I like that. Now that they don't say it anymore, I'm like, hmm, I guess I did like that. <laughs> I guess I did. You so. know, I mean, there was, I, it was fun going back, though, and looking up all of the coverage from yeah. 2018, because, you know, that doesn't often happen for story collections. It doesn't always happen for young writers, although sometimes that is still the hook. I remember when Taya Obrecht's first novel of Tiger's Wife came out and everyone was like, oh, look, you know, the the 24-year-old or however old she was. I mean, people got really excited. Publishing is weirdly into yeah. like that. I think it's because uh, you can like be in your prime in your 60s or 70s yeah. that uh, it's rare uh, for someone to even publish earlier on. But in terms of the team, I've been supremely blessed uh, with the people who have worked around with me for the first book, it was some of the same team, but uh, my I had a different publicist, Taryn Roder, who was a huge. You can't I know think, her. Yes, she's great. Taryn's <laughs> she's amazing. Fabulous. You can't think about Friday Black's uh, sort of success in that, in, in terms of like people's reach and whatever, without Taryn. And mm -hmm. then this time around, I had the same agent, Meredith, same mm -hmm. editor, Naomi, but we have a new, I have a new publicist because I changed pub, uh, publishers, mm -hmm. yep. uh, Josephine Cowles, and Josie mm -hmm. is like. Totally keeping that baton, like, in a beautiful yep. way. She's uh, done incredible stuff. And I'm just so grateful. I've been a lot, like, you know, my job is to write the book, but then I really can't overstate how grateful I am for people like Taryn, people like Meredith, people yep. like Naomi, people like Josie, people like my uh, marketing director both times around. Like, it's just, I've been very lucky. Yeah, you also do the work. So let's just say all of the pieces came together in the way that the pieces are supposed to come together. I mean, it's nice when it really works that way, especially when, you know, you do this thing where there are people who are just like, well, he writes genre and there are other people who are like, no, no, he writes literary. I just think of you as writing like Nana. And, you know, Colson Whitehead has done this too. That means too. a lot he's, to me. Thank you. You know, he's done the zombies. and But I know, I like, I see your work and I'm like, oh, I know. I mean, something weird's going to happen and I'm totally down for it. And I think that's really important to be able to bounce back and forth between, you know, realism can be overrated. Sometimes you need that sort of domestic drama and that, you know, whatever. But then there are other times where you're like, the world is so weird. I may as well just have a, a weirder thing. You're speaking my language. So, you know, you know, I'm very grateful to hear that because I think, and you sort of just named like what exactly I kind of like the real thing behind my genre, not genre, like whatever. Because mm -hmm. I struggled with that for a long time. I write realism. I write whatever else, speculative, sci-fi. Mm -hmm genre, whatever people want to call it. But really, I don't think about those things as I'm yeah. as I'm writing. I think about this sentence and how do I make it as complete as possible. But I also know that I have a style. I think it's recognizable. And I yeah. always want to have a style. That's like, that to me, that feels, that's why I, I, it really means a lot to me that you would say that because if this, if you read something and feel like this is Nana, that feels really good to me. Because that's kind of like, I think most artists want that. George is a, a stylist for sure. People know his style mm -hmm. off rip. Mm -hmm. But he's also somebody who writes a lot of weird stuff, but he also has stories that are just about a guy writing a letter to his kids or just about yeah. a guy who's trying to buy a house. Life is full of strangeness anyways. Yeah. If you have any, if not, I don't have to go to neurodivergencies. I don't have to go to the nature of dreams, but like we're full mm -hmm. of, this life is full of wonder already. And so this distinction that people have created, it's it's mostly for me very elementary and very like, it's for selling, which is fine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's great, but- don't let that like hinder your own conception because I think it limits how people even can hold things in their own mind's eye. That's what gets dangerous. Yeah. And I just, I think the more we can read and the wider we can, I mean, my my reading is sort of wildly Catholic and that's partially because I'm a bookseller, but it's also partially because that's how I interact with books. I mean, I've re I've gone down weird rabbit holes. I'm just like, I'm actually reading this writer I never in a million years would have read who was banned in Ireland in the 60s because Colin Tobin was like, oh yeah, he's absolutely seminal for me. And I'm just like, huh. Read a little John McGurn. You know, glad I did. Am I going to do his whole catalog? No, no, no. But now I have a pretty good idea of how he fits into 
to Ben's worldview. And, you know, I love being able to do that and just stretch a little bit and not always sit in my comfort zone. I find you very funny. I find you very nimble on the page. Like, I just, when I think of you, I know I'm going to get something great and there's going to be a serious wow payoff for me Thank as the you. reader. It means a lot. because, And I think that is like a hallmark of mine. I am going to like mix. There will be some humor even in like- Oh, yeah, yeah. Like the series, it's hard mm-hmm. to tell if I'll be in this, the way I'm talking about it. But there is going to be humor in my work. Like that's just because how I move through the world. There's going to be, there's going to be harshness. There's going to yeah. be institutional cruelty, probably. There's mm-hmm. going to be people trying despite it. There's going to be dynamic how characters, I care a lot about like sentence of low like considerations. Oh yeah, you do. No, it shows. It shows without a doubt. In those things, there's a million different things, but those are some of like the, bigger macro pieces that you throw into the pot that creates like the Nana thing. And I could do that mm-hmm. same thing in a story that's a hundred percent realism and a hundred percent surreal, whatever. I wrote a story called everything is lava. It was one of my first times ever writing a story. Mm-hmm. It's like a prompt. They uh, asked me to take like a headline. This is like, we were in mid pandemic time, yeah, yeah. like in the thick of pandemic. And mm-hmm. it's a story about a, a person who is dating someone with a child and he's with the child watching a YouTube video about astro physicist explaining gravity on yeah. five different levels of, I don't know if you see these YouTube videos. And at the, at the final level, when it's the astrophysicist talking to another astrophysicist, gravity and time become the same thing. This is real. Okay. Um, um, my brain broke a little bit, but I also ditched out of math and science sort of as soon as I could, because I was like, that's more space for like language and history. No, my brain definitely <laughs> broke too. My bra- to me, it's magic, right? Right. But yeah. to that astrophysicist, that's just how it goes. Eventually, right, yeah, gravity. It's, there's a. It's a fact that it's at least a scientifically a fact okay. that gravity and time are related, right? That's the whole interstellar thing. There's a thing about gravity okay. and time. Okay. But I just say that to say, I watched that in real life. That was 100 percent real. But to me, from my purview, that feels like magic. That feels like sci-fi. Yeah. That feels like whatever. Yeah. To that guy in that chair, it's it's just his job. To me, five years ago, this sitting here in his dinner and it's super fancy and it's a whole bunch of rich people, blah blah blah. This is surreal to me yeah. five years ago. Now it's not because I'm here. So it's all about your perspective. There's so many ways of living that so many people have no idea about. So it's about making it real to the reader in the moment on that sentence on the page. And then everything else is sort of just like accoutrements to help people understand in advance of buying, which sometimes predetermine their appreciation of any ways, which can be problematic, but also can be beautiful because it can also make, you know, I don't think genre is bad. I love like the magic of it. But what I don't like is the hierarchical ideas that emerge sort of naturally, not naturally, but like Mm -hmm. they come. And uh, because I love sci-fi, I love cool action things. I love mm-hmm. detective stuff. I like quote-unquote literary, whatever that even means. That's a whole different conversation. <laughs> what does it even mean? At this point, it has, and I've been doing this a really long time, I have many, many, many issues with the way we throw that word around. And, and I aspire I, to it, but what does it even mean? It doesn't, so, at the moment, have a whole lot of meaning. That's part of the problem. And you're a veteran bookseller. You're a real bookseller. And so if it means anything to you, that means it doesn't mean anything to them either. Yeah. It's a tricky moment to be in. And, you know, I respect people who want, like, straight-up entertainment. I I just want people reading. And I honestly, I'm not going to judge. Like, I read Flowers in the Attic when I was 12. Like, I cannot cast stones at anyone. <laughs> but... I do know that for me as a reader, like, I need language. I need character, but I don't necessarily need characters I like. Yeah. Which I think is a really, there are some people who are like, if I don't like the people, I can't do it. Okay. But that's not me. And I I do, like, I am actually one of those people who believes that there is a book for every reader. And if you you don't love to read, you haven't found your book. It exists. I don't know how to get you there in every case, but in a lot of cases, I can get you there. Me too. <laughs> That's why I do what I do. I think about it the same way. And I, I have like my little library in my room and I'm always mm-hmm. like tailoring my book, like gifts, like loaning out to people based on who they are. Yeah. Everybody's different. Everyone has a different style. But like the thing I think about where the literary thing breaks down is there's some people who think like genre stuff are not quote unquote literary. Well, oh, what, yeah, what, they're, what, they're, what they're doing is <laughs> overprivileging the imagination that takes into make that takes people to make like strange conceits or ideas. Yeah. And they're they're sort of stereotyping that in uh, unwillingness to focus on sentences. But yeah. that breaks down super quickly if you think about any, I could name a million, but the person who comes to mind because he's one of the best writers, period, is Ted Chiang. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Absolutely. So what? He's not literary? No, he is, as far as I'm concerned. He might be, he's one of the best <laughs> writers, period. 
If he's not yeah. literary, then I don't want to be it, you know, but he definitely is. But I'm just saying, like, it's, it breaks down so quickly. And I wish that book world would just like, grow up. Yeah, I get that. I say no, that. Trust me, I've been doing this a really long time. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. That's my little, that's my little thing. Everybody's doing good stuff. Stop trying to find that high. It's like just, people are so thirsty to be like better than somebody else based on nothing. Just read the actual book and judge about, judge it on yeah. itself. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, we, you and I could keep going for forever, but you know what happened? The time went and I yeah. knew this was going to happen, but Sorry. I did also, I did promise Josie that I would not keep you all afternoon and you and I could keep going for like hours and hours and hours more. But I appreciate it. You know what? You are so much fun and I really love your work. And I do love Chain Gang All-Stars and I'm really hoping that people come to it with an open heart and an open mind. And I think it is going to pleasantly surprise a lot of folks. I think it's going to have other people laughing and crying and doing all sorts of stuff. But I read so I can make my world bigger. And I get yeah. to do that when I read you. So thank you, Nana. I really appreciate it. Chain Gang All-Stars is out now. And if you haven't read Friday Black, which I don't know what to do if you haven't, but just go get that one too. <laughs> if you haven't, it's okay. But I appreciate that so much. That's really kind. It's really great questions. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're here to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Chain Gang All-Stars. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we're going to kick things off with my book buddy, Madison. Hi, Madison. Hello, I'm Madison. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble at The Grove. And if you don't mind, are you good if I, if I kick it off? Yeah, go for it. Got it. All right. So when I was thinking of a book to recommend to pair with Changain All-Stars. I decided to go with a classic for me for when I was in high school, which is The Hunger Games, which for me was like the start of this trend in like YA of battling to the death, but we're all children and why the government society wants to watch a bunch of teenagers kill each other, I don't know. But <laughs> I love The Hunger Games by Susan Collins. I think it was one of my favorite books growing up just because it was like my first introduction to like a true strong female lead I feel like with Katniss you know she's very headstrong you see her make such a sacrifice at a young age like volunteering to go into these games for her sister I just remember it being like yes this is everything I want it has like the action it has like a romance but it's like definitely not at the forefront. It's used as a tool, which I really, really like. It's used as like a strategic tool to like get them ahead in the games. And I feel like that's just like such a clever way to put it because you go away from like the cliches. And then I just think it has such great imagery in it. The message is important throughout the entire series. Just seeing that corruption of that government and learning how they got to that point to where they had to have the games and it is like very heartbreaking and you see Katniss come become like this like symbol for this like fictional world the concept of having to have a world and have a society where to like enforce something you have to send teenagers to battle is just like wild to me the adults in the capital like just living these like glamorous lives. It's like a reality TV show fix, but instead of like, you know, like what we have, which is like reality dating shows, it's reality fight to the death. It started a movement in like YA for that time because then after it, you had like the Maze Runner series, you had Divergent, like that was such like a big trend. I feel, I want to say like the like earlier 2000s, 2010s, which is why I think it's like such an impactful book. And like, we still see it today. We still kind of see that like battle to the death trend today, which is why I chose The Hunger Games for this week's recommendation. And yeah. I think you also have something in a similar vein as well. I do. And I will say as far as Hunger Games is concerned, we have been seeing in pretty much all of our bookstores, a big spike in uh, Hunger Games sales again with the prequel book getting made into a movie with all of the current movies being available to stream right now. 
the books are coming back into the conversation in a really big way. So it made me think about, right? Fight to the death. Let's go. Catching fire. Yeah. Oh my God. Sorry. <laughs> that needed to happen. I, I'll take it. But it did make me think of a, a book that I had read many years ago that I would kind of call the grandmother or grandfather of the Hunger Games. And that is Battle Royale by Koshun Takami. This is a cult classic, and it is a massive violence fest that came to the States, I think around late 90s, from Japan. The premise is basically a class of junior high students have to fight to the death on a desert island. It's a little bit more simplified than Hunger Games. I think a lot of the commentary on authoritarian government is a lot more nuanced, and you kind of have to read between the lines because the main focus are these 40 plus students. You get to follow all of them essentially for a chunk of time while they live and fight and survive and don't survive in a really horrendous way. The book's influence on Hunger Games and things like Squid Game is undeniable. It is a sort of cornerstone of that, I guess, like spectator sport of violence. I think it also spawned its own film in Japan as well as a manga series. It's a pretty big deal and still remains to this day. Is it tough to read? Yes, absolutely. Does it connect you to these children? Yes, it does. Does it have a commentary on the government? Yes. Does it run you through this fast-paced nightmare? Yes, absolutely. But is it worth the ride? I also say yes. So if you want something that's a bit more blood splattered than Hunger Games, then check out Battle Royale by Koshun Takami. But that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Happy reading. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.